chapter 2 begins like this in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. A translation, Nebuchadnezzar was having nightmares, as we'll see. His spirit was troubled by what he saw, and his sleep left him. Now, can you imagine having a terrible dream over and over and over again that you just cannot sleep at all? In fact, in Daniel 1, we met Nebuchadnezzar briefly. We found out he was a mighty king who was defeating the people of Judah. But in chapter 2, we're going to learn a bit more about Nebuchadnezzar the man. And so we might ask the question, why would a young man on top of the world be having a nightmare? I mean, he rules the largest empire. He's just conquered the Assyrians. He's about to conquer Judah, and he has material wealth to rival anyone in the world. Why in the world is this man so restless? You know, in our culture, dreams are often thought to be evidence of an interpersonal struggle. However, in the ancient world, dreams were considered a way that God or the gods, depending on your view, communicated to people. And so as such, Nebuchadnezzar has received a bad message and needs someone to help him make sense of it. So what he does is he calls together all the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers, anyone who can make sense of this, he calls them together among the people of Babylon and he tells them, guys, guys, listen, I've had a bad dream and I need to know what it is about. And so this results in a really interesting scene playing out at the beginning of chapter 2. All the wise people bow down before the king and ask him to tell him, tell them what the dream was so they can interpret it. But Nebuchadnezzar looks at them and says, aha, not so fast. I want you to tell me. I have to be sure that you have the correct interpretation, so I need you to tell me what the dream was. And so you're going to tell me the dream or I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Kind of harsh, right? But all the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers plead with the king, and they say, King, how are we supposed to interpret the dream if we don't know what it is? Well, that makes Nebuchadnezzar even more upset. He's even more angry. I mean, he knows they're just trying to buy time because they don't know what the dream is. So he demands again that they tell him the dream, or it's off with their heads. Well, the Babylonians respond with a great truth that we see in this passage. They say, there is no man who can meet the king's demands. They say, we can't ask what you do. Listen to this. In verse 11, it says, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. No one can show it to the king except the gods. They say, essentially, the wisdom of man cannot interpret your dream, O king, Well, Nebuchadnezzar is furious at this, and he flies into a fit of rage and says all these people who he's probably handsomely rewarding, maybe they're living in the palace. He says, they can't do what I ask, so I'm going to put out a decree, he says, to all the wise men in Babylon, even if they were not in the throne room, I want them to be killed. I don't care where they are, kill them. I want them dead, which even extends to Daniel and his friends. Can you imagine, to put a modern-day analogy on this, a CEO of a company going into a rampage because his employees weren't performing? This is like him or he or she firing everyone because they, even if they didn't have anything to do with the situation. So the captain of the guards, a man named Arioch, the king's chief executioner, seeks out Daniel. 
Now, I mean, just imagine you're Daniel in this situation. The captain of the guard shows up at your door and tells you that some incompetent wise men in his throne room have angered the king. And so as a result, you, Daniel, are going to die. And you look at Ariok and you say, what? What? This is a shock. He says, he asks, why is this so urgent? What's the rush? And then Ariok tells Daniel about the king's dream and his demands. And so Daniel does what any truly wise person would do in that situation. He makes an appointment to see the king so that he can interpret the dream. But here's the problem. Daniel doesn't know what the dream is. And so I might ask, what would you do? If someone was threatening to kill you, your friends, or your family, what would you do? Daniel says, I'll, I'll make an appointment. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll make an appointment. I'll figure out a way to tell him the dream. And as soon as Ariok left, he must have broken into a cold sweat. And then Daniel does the only thing he can do. He gathers all his friends together to pray. So we're going to pick up the story in Daniel chapter 2, starting on verse 17. And I'd like to do something a little different today. Um, if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. If we could stand up, and as I read the passage, I would invite you just to let the words wash over you. Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 17, it says this, Then Daniel went to his house and made, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And would you please pray with me? Gracious God, would you help us to know today that even in the darkness, even in the most troubling circumstances, you are the one who is wise and mighty. You are the one who gives wisdom and knowledge. You reveal deep and hidden things. Because you are light and you know what is in the darkness. Help us today to remember no matter where we are, no matter what we are walking through, no matter the circumstances, you are in control and you are the revealer of mysteries. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, there was a story on 60 Minutes a few years ago about an Iraqi family living in the city of Mosul. They were Christians, but they encountered some soldiers of the Islamic State, or better known as ISIS. You may remember this symbol on the screen that was all over social media around this time. It's the Arabic letter Nisara, or the English equivalent is N. 
And it's a derogatory Islamic term for Christians, which means Nazarite. And so when ISIS would take over an area, they would find out who all the Christians were, and they would put this letter on their doors of their homes. And it meant that you could either convert to Islam, you could pay an extortion fee, or you would die by the sword. Well, this is what happened to a man named Isa al-Karin and his family. He was one of thousands of Christians who had to make the choice as ISIS rampaged through Iraq and the surrounding areas. One night he was home with his family when ISIS fighters came for him. First they wanted to take away his money. They wanted to, then they wanted to take away his wife and his children. They told him he needed to convert to Islam, but he refused. He said, I follow Jesus. Why? Why do you need me to convert to your religion? But when they told him that he and his family would be killed, he relented and they took him to Mosul and he converted to Islam in a mosque there. However, there was a more devastating cost to this conversion. Because according to Muslim Sharia law, girls at the age of 10 were to be taken in marriage. And so it wasn't long before the ISIS soldiers came looking for his 10-year-old daughter to take her away. And when they came to his house, as he was recounting the story to this reporter on 60 Minutes, he says he refused, but he knew the soldiers would come back. And so as they left and they closed the door, he and his wife looked at each other and cried. And they wept because the thought of losing their daughter was too difficult to bear. They were scared. And then he said they did the only thing that they could do. They prayed. Like Daniel and his friends, they prayed. And I wonder if you've ever been there. Has there ever been a situation that seemed hopeless when you were, you were scared and you didn't know what to do and all you could do was pray? You see, at first glance, we read the opening of Daniel 2 and we say, ah, that doesn't apply to me. Nobody's knocking on my door and going to kill me for my beliefs or whom I'm associated with. It doesn't apply to me. That is, unless you are a Christian living in Iraq when a militant Muslim group takes over your home and marks your door. Have we become so comfortable and complacent in America that we think this could never apply to us? Do we read a story like the opening of Daniel 2 and say, that's great for Daniel, that's great for him, but I'll never be in that situation? Or will we? What if we were Christians who owned a cake shop in Portland, Oregon, and one day a same-sex couple walks in and asks us to bake a cake for their wedding, but we kindly refuse out of biblical conviction? which happened even before the Supreme Court case was decided in 2015, the couple who owned the bake shop was fined $135,000 by the state of Oregon. The financial loss was so devastating, the owners had to close the store and operate their business from home. Now, I understand for, for many of us there might be some complexities to that story. I understand that. But, but there was, I'm simply pointing out there was a penalty for seeking to live out sincere religious convictions. But Daniel 2 would never apply to us, or would it? So the reality of this narrative may be closer to home sooner than we realize, and when that happens, we may be in the same place as Daniel and his friends, and all we can do is pray and seek God's wisdom. Of course, we learn in verse 19 that Daniel and his friends did pray, they did get on their knees, and we are told that God revealed the mystery of the dream to Daniel. 
And in his shock and awe about the prospect of being killed, all Daniel could do was, was request a time to see the king so that he could try to interpret the dream. But again, he didn't know it at the time he made that request. He didn't know what was going to happen. And he prayed, and God revealed the answer to him, which, which that reality makes me stop and ask a very important question of myself and to all of us. Why don't we pray like Daniel did? Why don't we pray like Daniel did? Why isn't this kind of prayer the first thing we do when crisis hits us? I mean, listen, let's realize that prayer wasn't the only option that Daniel had in this situation. You may remember what God said about Daniel and his friends back in chapter 1, verse 17. It said, as for these four youths, God gave them, remember that phrase? God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. I mean, Daniel had some skill here. I mean, Daniel had the ability to understand these visions and dreams. And so when Ariok came to him and told him what was happening, Daniel could have said, you know what, why don't you just take me right now to the king? I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll figure out a way to tell him the dream. He could have thought, I'll figure it out with all my skill and wisdom. And you see, friends, I think this is the reality. I think many times the reason prayer isn't the first thing that we do is that we don't want help. We want to be the ones who figure it out. We want to be thinking that we're smarter than God. Why? Well, because then the person who figures it out is the one who receives the praise. You know, <clears throat> the whole passage here, I read this today, and it, it reminds me of many conversations I have with my wife. Because we'll be having a difficult conversation about money, and, and I'll usually be the one that says, well, how are we going to pay for that? And uh, I'll go back and I'll try to get creative about how we're going we're gonna to move funds around and how we're going we're, we're gonna to cut the budget or, or I'll get discouraged about another situation and I'll, I'll be walking around usually moping and eventually she'll stop me and she'll look me in the eye and she'll say, well, have you prayed about that? And I think <laughs> in almost every situa- case this happens, why wasn't that the first thing that I did? Because I like to figure it out on my own. In my own strength. And I suspect I'm not the only one who likes to do that. You see, Daniel could have walked into the king's throne room and tried to figure it out, but he didn't. He stopped and he prayed. He gathered his friends together and they prayed. But Daniel, even before that other option, he had even more options. You may remember back in chapter 1, he struck a deal with Ashpenaz, the king's steward, who was feeding him. And he struck a deal and said, uh, why don't you test me for 10 days uh, to see if I'm malnourished, if I eat just vegetables and water. And so when this new situation comes up here, Daniel could have, what Daniel could have done is he could have called in some favors. He could have uh, used his political capital that he had and the connections he had to, to get out of this situation. But he didn't. You see, Daniel recognized the thing that we often fail to see, which is this. We don't pray because we want to be wiser than God. We don't pray because we want to be wiser than God. Now, there may be many reasons why we don't pray, at least on the surface. Maybe we're too lazy to pray. Maybe we're so busy we don't make time for it. Maybe we're walking through a really painful season and we can't even think of talking to God. It's so painful Well, in this context, I simply want to suggest that often there is a deeper heart issue, and it's this. We don't pray because we hunger for the glory of victory. The glory comes when we figure out the problem on our own. 
And so Daniel looked at all his options and he said, no thanks, I'll trust God. As author David Helms puts it, God may, Daniel may be self-assured, but he is not self-reliant. Daniel remembers that phrase that was repeated over and over again in chapter 1, that God gave. God gave Daniel wisdom. God gave Daniel favor with the king. It wasn't Daniel's doing. Only God could have done it. And so when the rubber meets the road here in chapter 2, what does Daniel do? He tells his friends to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And God gives Daniel the answer. And in turn, Daniel gives God the glory. So let's, let's look briefly again at that beautiful prayer that Daniel offers to God. Verse 19. It's, he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Notice first that Daniel's prayer quickly turns to praise for God. That initially Daniel is seeking God's face for wisdom and discernment. He's recognizing his need, but then it turns to praise. Why does it turn to praise? Well, Dan, listen, in this situation, Daniel was on his deathbed. I mean, if he did not interpret the king, the, the, the king's dream, he was going to die. But God, in his mercy, delivers him from death. Now, how can we not praise God when he does that? And this is God's power, verse 21. He changes times and seasons, Daniel prays. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. Who is this God? He is the one who removes kings and sets them up. And the only reason Nebuchadnezzar had power and wealth, whether he realizes it or not, and whether we realize it or not, is because of God. The only reason Daniel has wisdom is because of God, because he reveals the deep and hidden things. You see, the, even the wise men of Babylon knew this at the beginning of the passage. What did they say? They said, no one can show the dream to the king except God. But only Daniel recognized that God is wiser than man. And that God deserves praise. But here's what is also so interesting to me about this, this passage in prayer. I think that while, while prayer is often not the first thing that we do, even more so praise is the last thing that we do. Like we, have to be, we have to be pulled to praise something because we're, we're kind of skeptical. Is that really God that worked there, right? Well, let me just ask you this question. When was the last time that we stopped, church, and praised God for how he worked in our lives, for how he delivered us from a situation? I think we need to learn to praise like Daniel did. And so I would ask that second question. Why don't we praise God? Why don't we praise God when we are scared and confused and hurting, or when things aren't going our way. Why don't we praise God? Because that's where Daniel was. But he prayed, and God answered his prayer. But listen, you say, well, he prayed, he answered. Okay, but there was still more Daniel had to do here. The story does not end there. Daniel now has to go to the throne room of the king, and he's got to tell the king the dream. Gulp. Because if you know anything about this passage, you know what the dream is, and there was not a guarantee that the king was going to respond favorably to the dream and its interpretation. So just imagine here, just imagine you're Daniel in this situation. I'm Daniel. We, 
We have to go and walk into the throne room and, and tell the king what's going on, and you don't know what's going to happen, and so you walk in and you see Ariok again, that guy who came and told you he needed to kill you, and, and he, you just walk up to him and you say, listen, Ariok, I know the dream and its interpretation. Take me to the king. So Daniel walks into the throne room, and he stands before Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember again, King Nebuchadnezzar is already intimidating. He's already angry at all the wise men in Babylon, and he's probably sitting on his huge throne, and he he starts to stare down at Daniel with a scowl on his face, And with an irritated voice, he looks at Daniel, and this is what he says, Are you able to interpret my dream? And what's the first thing that Daniel does? Does he say, yes, yes, I'm wise, I can do it? No. The first thing Daniel does is give credit where credit is due. Verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. You see, a lesser man may have sought glory for himself, but Daniel doesn't. He gives credit and praise to God, and I may ask again, what would, what would we have done in this situation? What would I have done? That if we are to unlock the key as to why we don't praise God, we have to understand this reality. The reason we don't praise God is because we think we're the center of the universe. We don't praise God because we think we're the center of the universe, because we want it to be all about us. Again, here, Daniel had options. Daniel could have said, yes, I figured it out. Instead, he says, God revealed it to me. And so there's two things we see in Daniel's action here. First, we see that Daniel was humble, that he recognizes it's not about him. It's about God, that God is doing something here, and Daniel just gets to be a part of it. And so if we want to praise God, we need to be humble. Now, secondly, and maybe more Sharply, we see Daniel speaks truth to power. Have you ever asked the question, if you've read this passage before, why God chose to reveal the dream to Daniel? I mean, sure, it saves Daniel's life, right? But remember, this story, as we talked about last week, is primarily about God. And so why does God reveal the dream to Daniel and allow him to bring it to the king? Well, because God is trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention He wants an audience with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a a message for him. He wants to tell him something. And so he's going to use Daniel to do this, which is a good reminder for us. Because God is looking for humble people who recognize they aren't at the center of the universe and who will be willing to speak truth to powerful people. You see, God needs people who understand and can state his word to the world. And so wherever God has placed you, just like he did Daniel, he's got a mission for you and for me. That he's placed you in your line of work so that others can hear your voice. That's how God will build his kingdom. And that is how God is using Daniel here. And so, Daniel goes on and he tells the king the dream. And this is how it starts. You saw, O king... He said, and behold, 
A great image. A great image. And if you've read this passage before, you know what the image looked like. And the king's dream was this. He saw a statue. And it was brilliant and extraordinary. And its towering presence was frightening. Its head was made of gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its legs were of iron. And its feet were of iron and clay. It was a statue made by human hands. And it was top-heavy. Remember that. Because if the feet were taken out, the whole statue would crumble. And there was more to the dream. And this is the part that Nebuchadnezzar was concerned about. Listen, if you go down to verse 34, it says this. As you looked, he said, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You see, the huge statue made by gold and silver and bronze and iron was destroyed by the stone. Now take notice that the stone was cut out by no human hand which implies, by contrast, the the statue was made by human hands, right? And so that phrase, made by human hands, if you look throughout Scripture, is code word for an idol. But the stone was not made by human hands. It turns the statue to ash and was blown away by the wind. And so you're, you're sitting here, you read this, and you say, what am I supposed to make of this, right? Well, that's the question the king once answered. And so Daniel interprets the dream. He says this. He says, The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, is you. It's Babylon, to whom God has given amazing power in the present age, which, i got to tell you, probably pleased the king because he found out he was the head of gold. I mean, who wouldn't want to be the head of gold, right? Emphasizing his power and his his greatness. And so it says here, after him, there's going to come an inferior kingdom, which is the silver. And then after that, there's going to come gold, uh, or I'm sorry, a a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And then after that, there's going to be a fourth kingdom made of iron and clay, which is ironic because the strongest substance is iron and then it's mixed with clay. And so as a result, that kingdom is going to be both strong and brittle. Now, There is a debate about what this image represents and what actual kingdoms it represents. But the traditional view uh, is that they represent, at the top, the head of gold is Babylon itself, which is pretty clear here. But the the silver kingdom is Medo-Persia, the kingdom that's going to come after Nebuchadnezzar. The bronze kingdom is going to be Greece, which includes Alexander the Great, which we see later in, in the book of Daniel. And then the last kingdom is the Roman Empire. And so as such... We see Daniel giving a prediction about the future of history here, which we'll discuss in more detail later in the book. But I want to tell you today, equally as important, we need to recognize the message of this narrative, which is this. If you skip down to verse 44, you'll see that it becomes crystal clear. Daniel goes on. He says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And so the message of the narrative is this. Every kingdom, every empire that has been established throughout history will come to an end. 
The stone will come and destroy them. They will be like dust in the wind. In fact, the mountain in verse 35 represents God's kingdom expanding through the whole earth until one day it shall be established forever and ever because only his kingdom is eternal. Now, it's ironic that we come to this passage the Sunday after the 4th of July, the day when we celebrate the birth of our own nation. And by all standards, the USA is the most wealthy and powerful nation in history. In history. And so we celebrate that with displays of fireworks. And yet, if we're to believe this passage and read it, even the USA will fall. It will become dust and blow away in the wind someday. And that's a sobering thought. Which is not to say that we should not be good citizens, that we shouldn't be proud of our country, that we shouldn't be involved in civic affairs, but it is to remind us as followers of Christ that ultimately our citizenship is in heaven and that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth and God's kingdom will be the only one that reigns eternally and justly. And too often we place our hope in earthly kingdoms. And when things are going well for our nation, we celebrate. And when things are not going well for us, we jeer. So we may ask a question that even Nebuchadnezzar had to grapple with. What will we do when our kingdom crumbles? What will we do when our kingdom crumbles? Because when Daniel gave this interpretation to the king, he wasn't sure how it would be received. The king could have been furious and killed him. And after all, Daniel essentially is telling him, here, listen, your kingdom, uh, O king, is going to one day be gone and evaporate. You know, many people with a great drive for power are often anxious and fearful, and so he could have been really set back by this. But look, look at how Nebuchadnezzar responds, verse 46. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Wow. In fact, I imagine Nebuchadnezzar was pleased that he was the head of gold and that his kingdom was recognized as glorious, but it would eventually fall. And yet, he falls on his face and worships the God who removes kings and sets them up. He was told that in the future, his kingdom, the one he had spent his whole life building, would crumble, and yet, he prays God. He had this opportunity because Daniel relied on God to speak truth to power. And you see, the dream was ultimately a call to humility for Nebuchadnezzar. He saw he had not achieved power. Rather, it was given to him by God. And so when his kingdom crumbled, he praised God. And so we have to ask ourselves that same question. What will we do when our kingdoms crumble? Will we weep and mourn? And wail, or will we fall on our face and praise God? Let me tell you a story. You may remember a baseball player by the name of Daryl Strawberry. He has been described as one of the most electrifying players in Major League Baseball history. Throughout his 17-year career, he made eight consecutive All-Star games, won four World Series championships, and if you are a Met fan out there, I know there's a couple of you, uh, you, will be, you will remember him helping the Mets win the world championship in 1986. And if you're a Red Sox fan, I'm sorry. I know it's painful. 
but you made up for it, right? Daryl's prowess on the baseball field was overshadowed, though, by his controversial life off the field. He grew up in an abusive home with an alcoholic father. During his baseball career, he was prone to drug abuse and a fast lifestyle. With all the fame, there was also pressure to perform, and so to cope, Daryl turned often to drugs. After signing a lucrative deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1990, he squandered it all and hit rock bottom. He entered a rehabilitation clinic, and while things got better and his career resurged by helping the New York Yankees win the World Series in 1996, Daryl soon had a relapse. After the 1999 season, he was arrested again for drug possession and was suspended from the league. Over the next five years, Daryl lost everything. His career, his family, even, even, even himself. But during his, rehab- his rehabilitation, he met a woman named Tracy, a born-again Christian. And as Tracy would pray for Daryl, crying out to God on his behalf, she would show him what it meant to follow after Jesus. And soon, her example rubbed off on Daryl, and he knew it was time to make a change and to surrender. And so Daryl put it this way. He said, I had to surrender. I had to get with God himself. I had to separate myself from everything and everybody. God was calling me. And it was either I was going to answer his call or I was going to die. So Daryl went back to church and dedicated his life to the Lord. This time it was for good, because these days he's a change man, even working with the Mets organization. But you see, just like Nebuchadnezzar's future kingdom, Daryl Strawberry's personal kingdom was shattered. It was crumbled. He lost everything, wealth, family, reputation. He had to be brought to a place of humility and surrender. And that's an important lesson for us, because when our kingdom crumbles... It is then that we need to praise God. When our kingdoms crumble, it is then that we need to praise God. Because until our kingdoms crumble many times, we think we're the center of the universe. Daniel always remembered that God was king, that he was the one telling the story, and that he was the one worthy of praise. Sometimes the crumbling of our kingdoms is an act of God's grace. Because God is teaching us a lesson that we need to learn. So why don't we pray? Because we want to figure it out. Why don't we praise? Because we want the glory. But what will we do when our kingdoms crumble? It is then that we need to praise and pray to the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. Because he's the one who sets up kings and removes them. He knows what is hidden in the darkness because he is the light. The message God gives to Nebuchadnezzar is that the Babylonian kingdom will be replaced by another kingdom and another and another until the kingdom of God comes and will replace all human kingdoms. Remember, this message was recorded for God's people in exile and I'm sure it brought them great hope. They, they may have been far from the promised land, but they heard in this message that God is a God of gods and Lord of lords. He sets up kings, he removes them. And you know what? Some 500 years later, after this was written, Jesus comes to earth. <laughs> and the kingdoms of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece have all fallen away 
It's the Roman Empire that now rules the world. The era of iron and clay has come. And Jesus starts preaching a peculiar message for many. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is drawn near. Well, after all this talk about kingdoms in Daniel, it should spark some interest. What does this mean? Is there a connection? You know, Daniel 2.34 spoke of a stone that was cut not by human hands, and it struck the statue and turned it to dust, and it became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Well, let's ask a question we didn't ask back then. Who is the stone? Who is the stone? Well, later in his life, the religious leaders dismiss Jesus and his teaching, and so he speaks a parable against them in Luke 20. And he says their rejection of him is like the killing of the vineyard's owner's sons who are by, like, the, like the rebellious tenants. But then he goes on to, to narrate in this parable all these Old Testament references about stones. He like gathers them up and he applies them to himself. And it culminates in, in Luke 20, 17 and 18 with an indirect reference to Daniel 2. It says of Jesus, but he looked directly at them and said, when this what, what then is this written? That the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And it will fall on anyone. When it falls on anyone, it will crush them. You see, the stone prophesied hundreds of years before he actually came was Jesus Christ himself. That the King of kings and Lord of lords, he, the stone, will crush all other kingdoms and will build his kingdom on earth. And so, church, here is the question for us this morning. Is his kingdom ruling over your heart today? Because the truth is this, God will establish, has established his kingdom, and we either are built into it or we are crushed by it. Gold, silver, Bronze, even iron, none can stand against God, the eternal king. What we need is for Jesus to shatter our kingdoms so that he can build his. We're about to have some baptisms. We're going to have some people coming into the tank that are saying, essentially, Jesus shattered my kingdom so that I could build his. Jesus broke me so that I could recognize that he is the center of the universe, not me. My kingdom has to crumble so that the stone can expand. And I need to throw my crown down at his feet. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. They have one more song for us before we do baptisms. And as they come, I would ask this question in closing. Where does Jesus need to shatter your kingdom so that his can be built. Because I don't know where everyone is today, but I do know that the stone, Jesus himself, needs to shatter the kingdom that I am building daily. That I can't do this on my own. I am not worthy of praise. He deserves the glory. And so friends, it's only when we decrease that he can increase. So let's pray, like Daniel. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might, that he removes kings and sets up kings. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. Amen.